0: Hello, boils,
1: ghouls, and non by scary listeners, to our very special Halloween episode. Um, today, we're doing a special episode full of terrifying medical stories and tales, some fictional, but some heart wrenchingly real. Uh, non-bi-scary is the best uh, non-binary Halloween gender I could come up with mm-hmm. um, although you did mention there were other contenders.
0: Yeah, somebody, because you made a Twitter post about it and yeah. somebody said Skeletons. Mm-hmm. Skeletons. I thought that was pretty funny It was pretty it was funny. pretty good. I was actually waiting to see which one you would choose <laughs> I'm a little disappointed it wasn't Skeletons, but yeah. alas There's a lot of
1: good Halloween gender potential mm-hmm. here <laughs> uh <laughs> Halloween, Halloween
0: is the most inclusive holiday. It
1: really is. You're listening to LeechFest, a medical history podcast, and I'm Mia Murder.
0: And I'm Dracula Montano. <laughs> uh,
1: and as mentioned, we're going to talk about spooky things today. Mm-hmm. It's a bit different than the typical one. We don't have a topic. Mm-hmm. Um, we're gonna have like sort of a topic. The topic is spooky things.
0: <laughs> spooky things that are kind of related to medical science and yeah. medicine and things like that. We just wanted to do something new, something special for Halloween, mm-hmm. um, as Halloween is the best holiday. Yeah. So we just wanted to, to do something special yeah. and we hope you like it.
1: We have a pumpkin in the recording studio. Yeah, we do. It's a full ass pumpkin. It's not carved yet, because we're recording <clears> this <throat> a bit earlier than release, but it's it's there. But before we dig into our spooky, spooktacular, how have you been?
0: I've been good. I've been um, very busy with school and I've been busy working on my Halloween costume. Mm. Uh, it's very exciting. Last year I was a crow and this year I'm going to be a mythological creature that I've always been very drawn to, that has ears and goat feet.
1: <laughs> you are just a little creature. <laughs> I am
0: just a little creature. You cannot change this. I cannot. I'm super I'm super excited about this costume actually. I mean you can tell, you can you already you can tell what it is, but I'm super excited about it. I get to use my sewing machine. Um I get to you to go to the textile shop and touch all the furry furry textiles. Um it's all very exciting.
1: Mm, this podcast is pro furry.
0: But that sounds great. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's going to be really fun. How are you? And most importantly, what are you going to be for Halloween? I'm
1: going to be a rat. Yeah. I'm, go- I'm just gonna be a rat because I don't I don't I'm not super good at making costumes, yeah, but I'm gonna do a sort of burlap sack rat style thing. there I have an outfit and idea, and it's it's hard to convey a visual image in the audio format for this podcast. Mm-hmm. but there's a there's a sort of child actor outfit, yeah. that I have in my mind that I've seen as a child, like at a as a Christmas movie, whatever where Sweden has a lot of weird movies where people are rats, but in live action. So they just wear the worst outfits ever imaginable. But they're sort of cute. They're stylistic. Uh, and I'm going to be that. I'm going to be a rat with a big droopy nose and a nice little tail.
0: And you're going to have uh, some cheese, I heard. Yes. you're going to bring to the party.
1: Yeah, I'm going, I'm, we're going to a Halloween party and we're, I'm going to bring a variety of cheeses. On a platter. On a platter. Because I'm a rat. <laughs> but I'm a nice rat who shares. <laughs> Uh, no, but I've been good. I've been uh, I've been working, uh, setting up my office space. Finally got my desk. I think I mentioned that last episode too. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, this this desk has been a, a special guest <coughs> for for the past two episode I fe- episodes. I feel. We, yeah, I- we've <laughs> just been talking about this because de- because that's how long it took for the yeah. desk to to arrive. Yeah, <laughs> like two months basically. Yeah,
1: but it's finally here in the recording studio. Yeah, and it's assembled. Mm-hmm. Now I'm just like soundproofing my studio and doing stuff like that. It's nice. It's a good job. I'm I'm working. I'm also preparing for YouTuber tax season because uh, you, the YouTube tax is different because I'm self-employed and I don't have a boss, mm-hmm. so my taxes are a bit weird. Mm. Uh, so I'm trying to deal with that by uh, once again coming out uh, as a new gender and transitioning uh, into a corporation because uh, that will make taxes easier uh, and I don't actually have to change anything <laughs> except for my gender, which will be LLC. I haven't been doing too much, but I'm happy I have my desk.
0: Yeah. Very Nice. Um, okay, so before we get into the episode, as always, we have to thank one of our patrons. And for this episode, the person who gets the shout out is Oxy. Oxy. Oxy, you get to, to be uh, shouted out for our spooky sod. Congratulations. Uh, thank you for being our... <laughs> so formal (laughs) thank you for being our patron we appreciate your support
1: and uh congratulations on becoming the spookiest patron of them all (laughs) haunting our podcast for eons to come
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) and of course thank you to everybody else who's supporting the podcast your uh contribution means a lot to us Mm -hmm. and we are very grateful yeah
1: So I want to start off this episode by talking about a practice, a spooky practice, a Halloween practice that once happened, that is a bit ghoulish, and still does happen on occasion.
0: By the way, I have no idea what you're going to talk about. Yeah, I know. We've I just kept wanted... the topic
1: semi-secret.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, you told, me, you told me vaguely, but then you also said that you changed it up a little bit, and then you have a surprise for me. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm, I'm kind of scared, kind of excited...
1: So the perfect Halloween attitude. Yeah. Wonderful. Because I have been inspired mm-hmm. uh, by our very favorite medical doctor on this podcast, Dr. Frankenstein. Oh. Uh, who famously did a practice uh, to build his very own himbo husband, Adam. Uh, and that is the practice of body snatching. I, I Finding like a Halloween medical uh, topic is harder than it looks.
0: Yeah, surprisingly. Uh, but
1: body snatching... Uh, and some stories relating to it, are surprisingly Halloween-friendly. So, before we get into the, the, the gory details, uh, body-snatching is the secret removal of corpses from burial sites. And it's not the same as a grave-robbing, which may, you may think of initially. Uh, because grave-robbing is where you break into graves and tombs to find valuables, such as e- jewelry or items, but body-snatching <clears throat> is you're getting in there for the body. For their for the, for the meat. Now the only way before 1832 to get a legal supply of corpses for anatomical studies, like doctors and scientists, they need bodies to study and research and t- to train on, the only way to get those bodies were by people who had been condemned to death and dissection. Which is where not only have you done a crime so bad that you deserve to die, you don't even have the right to be buried. Mm. Like you, you are going to become mincemeat for mm. students mm. Uh, to, to play around with. Well, to train on, I guess. I I hope they don't play around with the bodies. Although I've read some Reddit posts that would hint otherwise, but that's a subject for another time. Those who were sentenced to dissection by the courts were often guilty of comparatively harsher crimes. Um, Such sentences did not provide enough subjects, though, uh, for medical schools, because there would be maybe only 50 people a year who would be sentenced to this, whereas schools during this time would need as many as 500 cadavers, Every single year to like have an adequate supply of bodies. So there's a huge shortage of just dead people. <laughs> that- and
0: where do we find dead people? Where do we
1: find dead people? <laughs> this is the question. Because um, there were some enterprising people who realized that interfering with a grave, uh, which is what taking a body out of it would be, is a misdemeanor at common law. which is not And it's not a felony. Therefore, it can only be punishable with a fine or some imprisonment which is a comparatively, like, not super bad sentence. And a lot of people thought that the, the trade of taking bodies out of graves and selling them to doctors and universities was a sufficiently lucrative business to run the risk of detection. It was also not heavily enforced because the authorities would see it as a sort of necessary evil. Like, so if if a cop, like, catches a couple of people grave robbing or uh, body snatching, there's a mm-hmm. difference, uh, they might not... They might not even catch them because the universities need the bodies. Yeah. They need them to train. It's And it's good for people. But they were often careful to not steal anything like jewelry or clothes because then they would be grave robbing. And that's a felony.
0: Okay. And I then have, you can be executed. Okay. I have a question here. Yes. So, like, let's say somebody was planning to, to, to body snatch somebody, mm-hmm. but they didn't want to take the clothes and the jewelry. Mm-hmm. Would they... Undress the corpses and leave everything in the grave.
1: Yeah, that's that's what they would do. So uh, the practice, of the, the exact practice of the, how they would do it though, is they would dig. Do you take them with underwear? No,
0: you have to leave the underwear. Have to
1: leave, Have to take them completely naked. So you undress this dead body in the graveyard and put the clothes back. Because yeah. if you take them, you're you're committing a felony. <clears throat> but if you only take the body, you're in, you're interfering with the grave. Legal loopholes. <laughs> because if uh, and they really wanted to avoid doing felonies, because then you can be uh, sent off to like Australia, the worst in, sentence anyone can bear. bear. In,
0: in grave, grave robbing was, uh, was a more severe crime yeah, than body snatching. Yeah, that's a
1: felony, yeah, exactly. mm-hmm. You can either be executed or worse, be sent off to Australia. But I know what you're thinking, right? Body snatching is a bit morbid, but where, is it Halloween spooky? Is it really as scary as we think? Well, dear listener, here's where the story goes from dark to death. <laughs> because during this time, a lot of families obviously didn't like their families being snatched away from their graves right after they did that. So they would, uh, you know, sometimes they would stand guard for a significant amount of time after the person had been a person had been buried, or they would uh, do other protections, and I'll get to those later. But that meant that it wasn't always possible to like meet the demand of bodies even with this industry of body snatching Uh, you may not be able to get 500 bodies a year where where else do you get bodies well there are people just walking around isn't there they can become bodies really (laughs) quick and this brings me to a story about serial killers and i want to tell a story about two people Hare and uh, Hare and burke murders or they're called which involve two people called william Hare. And William Burke. On 29th of October 1827, a lodger in William Hare's house had died of dropsy shortly before receiving his pension from the army, which means he couldn't pay rent. And Hare didn't like this. He was like, well, I wanted that money, but he died. So what am I gonna do? And he told this to his friend William Burke, and the pair decided to sell the tenant's body to one of the local anatomists. They found a carpenter to provide a coffin for a burial, uh, which was paid for by the local parish. But after they left, uh, after the after the carpenter uh, left, the pair opened the coffin and removed the body and replaced it with bark, uh, and resealed it. After dark, they took the body to Edinburgh University, where they looked for a purchaser. They're stuffing this in a tea box, which is a fairly like like a small chest, basically, and just walking around campus uh, to various faculties, being like, "Do you want to buy?" <laughs> Do you, you want a corpse?
0: I have a fresh corpse, like, outside in the hallway. Do you want it?
1: Do, do you want a swan to corpse? Very suspicious. They actually asked for directions for, for a professor called Professor Monroe. But a student sent him to, to a man called Professor Knox in Surgeon Square. And although the men dealt with a bunch of juniors discussing the possibility of selling the body, once they reached Professor Knox, he gave them seven pounds... And ten shillings.
0: Sounds like a lot of money
1: uh, for for this body today. The equivalent would be around seven hundred pounds. Perk and Hare—they split the money between them. They paid off the the rent that was had been unpaid, and uh, then they, you know, they got some nice snacks. They got some nice clothing. <laughs> they was like, hey, this is good money. Mm-hmm. This is pretty nice. But now they've got a they they've got a taste. And one of Knox's assistants told them that if they found another body. If they just had another body, they would be happy to take <laughs> it off their hands. I'm <laughs> uh, not saying
0: you have to do anything, but if you <laughs> stumble upon a fresh, dead, a fresh body dead body outside in the street, like, we'll take it. We'll take it.
1: And here, we don't know all the details here. We don't know exactly the order of the murders. And I'm not going to tell about all of them, because that's going to take up the entire podcast episode. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to to give a little hint. On 12th of February, 1828, a person was invited to Hare's house and plied with enough alcohol to ensure that she was too drunk to return home, and she was murdered. Burke and Hare placed the body in a tea chest and sold that to Knox as well. They received 10 pounds for that body. And in Burke's confession from his trial, he noted that Dr. Knox approved of it being so fresh, but he did not ask any questions of how they got it. After this, they killed uh, two more people. They killed an old woman and a dumb boy, according to their own notes. Even this murder, they stuffed them into tea chests, sold them off to Knox, got eight pounds each for both of them. But apparently, according to Burke, he was so upset over this murder, like he did not like having to have done this murder, that he was very upset with the horse, because the horse didn't want to drag the tea cart to the surgeon's square, so he had to like carry the bodies himself (laughs) all the way. Uh, So he got so mad at the horse, so after he had sold the bodies, he took the horse uh, back into the yard and shot it dead. (laughs) Because he was so angry.
0: <laughs> the horse didn't do anything wrong. The horse didn't do anything wrong.
1: The, the horse that wanted sucks. out. Yeah. You just punished the horse for this. Yeah. I know. That summer, Burke had gone off to his father's funeral. But when he came back, they found that Hare, his co-conspirator, suddenly had a lot more fancy clothing. <laughs> uh, and a lot more, uh, like, better aesthetic. And they had a bit of an argument, being like, have you sold... Did you kill without me... <laughs> Um, it it's led, our
0: business It's our business
1: uh, It led to an argument between the two men And they came to blows But they would quickly become friends again And join up for one last kill On October 31st, 1828 Margaret Dougherty was lured into the Burke uh, house With promises of a lot of alcohol Along with her friends Burke tricked her by saying that he was also Irish On the same family So they were like distantly related They weren't he was lying. Uh, but that's sort of the trick. But they couldn't get her friends to leave. So what they did was they bribed uh, her friends, 10 pounds each, to sort of stay in, in another part of the part of the house while they kept drinking with their family, so to say. And they were fine with it. Like, oh, we'll get some more whiskey. And then the, you, she can hang out with her, fa- with her family, so to say. They killed her, sold her body. But two days later, they came back being like, hey, where's our friend? <laughs> Last time we saw our friend, they were here. Mm -hmm. And now our friend's gone.
0: And your clothes are nicer. What (laughs) (laughs) happened? Your clothes
1: are nicer. Um, And here is where it all comes rumbling down. When her friends returned, one of them became suspicious when Burke would not let her approach a bed where she had left some stockings. When they were left alone in the house in the early evening, they searched the straw of the bed and found blood and saliva. Saliva? Mm Mm-hmm.
0: How would you find saliva in straw?
1: Uh, oh, because they also found her body in there.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so they found blood, saliva, and also her body. And like... also her body. Yeah. That <laughs>
1: um,
0: makes things easier. It makes
1: things easier. They run away obviously because they've just found their dead friend. Mm-hmm. Uh, running to alert the police, and they run into one of Burke's friends who is like in on the conspiracy, who offers to bribe them uh, with ten pounds a week like, forever until they sell something, which is good money. Like, I'm not gonna say it, that's a lot of money.
0: Yeah, but it's a bad business practice.
1: It's a very bad business practice. They refused. They reported the murder to the police, but in, while they did that, Burke and Hare removed the body, took it to the surgery, but at this point, the police, they're on them, they can find the blood, they quickly, like, look around as various anatomists, and find, like, oh yeah, like, these two guys, they were here, like, a while ago, and tried to sell the body, but we showed them to Knox... And then they found Knox and was like, oh, here are all the bodies of the people who have been missing for a while. In the end, they were both tried and sentenced to death. The investigation did not take very long because basically anyone involved in this huge conspiracy, they all turned on on Hare and Burke. Like everyone wanted to witness against them to reduce their own sentence. The entire trial took one day and the sentence was given literally the next day, on Christmas Day, actually. And as they were giving the death sentence to Burke... The judge said your body should be publicly dissected and anatomized. And I I trust that if it is ever customary to preserve skeletons, yours will be preserved in order that posterity may be in remembrance of your atrocious crimes. After which he was hanged, his body dissected for science, and his skeleton is still on display in the Edinburgh Medical School.
0: Wait. Oh, okay. Never mind. So I actually went to Edinburgh um, Surgical Museum, Surgery Museum. Oh, shit. Yeah, but I think that's different.
1: I'm not sure. It may be. Is that part of the Edinburgh Medical School?
0: No, I don't think so. I think yeah. it's separate. I did see some skeletons, um, but the skeletons that I saw belonged to people who had um, genetic uh, defects. Mm. So I don't think they had any like skeletons of just like grown men. Yeah. Just like uh, a guy. Just like a guy. Yeah. So it might be a different place, but that's kind of cool. Yeah. He's still there. Yeah. Yeah.
1: You can go and see it. Yeah. Uh, you may have learned That's about a, bones from a serial killer, yeah. dear listener, if you've been there. <laughs> now, their activities, and those of the London burkers who imitated them, because they got copycats, copycats. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people killed people,
0: Copycatted.
1: they got copy <laughs> uh, all of this resulted in the passage of the Anatomy Act in 1832, which allowed people to donate their bodies to science after they died. And once this happened and people started doing it, the... The trade died out because mm. no one's going to, no one wants yeah, to yeah, do that yeah, anymore. Yeah, yeah. This allowed uh, unclaimed bodies and those donated by relatives to be used for study uh, of anatomy, which now also requires licensing. Before this act, anatomists and like, medical practitioners also didn't need a license to just receive a body, mm-hmm. which is uh, also like, how this trade kept going a little bit because you can just like, sell a body to a guy. Would like you can just set up shop and say that like oh I study bodies.
0: Mm. It's kind of fucked up that now I, I would say there's even like too many bodies, right? I think you told me that fact that actually medical schools have too too many bodies and then they sell those bodies to like gun testing facilities. Uh, yeah,
1: that's uh, that's not part of my script, but that's that's literally how things happen now. Yeah, A lot yeah. of hospitals and universities will sell. Will sell, their we'll sell the bodies. donated bodies. to to medical to weapons manufacturers yeah and like um uh... did
0: you say also car testing Mm -hmm. like safety testing facilities
1: yeah yeah safety testing i can sort of get because it's kind of science like you're making something safer to save lives right yeah but do
0: you need a corpse for it i don't know i feel like well you can test with ballistic
1: dummies as much as you can Mm. but in the end like a human body i think is like the best test dummy Mm. what is really messed up though is like how like because they don't tell the relatives that they do this yeah yeah
0: exactly you may think that your body is going to go to science it's going to help scientists medical practitioners maybe save lives in the future but really they're just going to blow up your body with a machine gun yeah
1: yeah, they want to see how also Magina like birth, It's just
0: so, so fucked up because you, you donate your body right for free. Yeah. But then the hospitals literally make a profit. Yeah. I don't I don't want to like discourage anybody from donating their body, but but it's just it's fucked up.
1: Yeah. Like there should definitely be I know this became a big scandal either in the UK or the US. Mm-hmm. Um so I do think that in one of those countries now you, you can actually like have a big form mm-hmm. and you sort of like I approve of my body being used for X. Mm. And then they can't sell it to anything that's like not any of those.
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't I don't see how that's not the norm. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Anyway. It's,
1: it's, it's so weird. Now, body center became such a prevalent thing before this law change, uh, the, before the Anatomy Act, that it uh, be- didn't become unusual for relatives and friends to just sit watch over a body for like more than a week, basically, after burial. I mentioned that before. But also, there were other methods to like, keep a body in the grave, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, such as iron coffins mm-hmm. were used. Some people would use graves protected by a framework of iron bars called mort-safes.
0: Mort-safes?
1: Mort-safes. <laughs> and yeah, I've seen people on TikTok make uh, stuff about these, because they look like... It looks like a, like a medieval cage over a grave, because they're just like, there's bars. Um, And it really does look like something to keep something in. In, Yeah. I've seen some people on TikTok talk about how this is like evidence that vampires used to exist. So they like caged them into the ground. No, it's to keep people out in like the 1820s. Mm -hmm. It even went so far that cemeteries would start building watchtowers, but not to have a guard in it to like watch for people, but rather to keep bodies inside of it until such point that they had decomposed to the point where it's not even worth snatching the body anymore. Mm. So it's a rot tower. It's just a why do they call form. it a
0: watchtower if it's actually a rot tower?
1: Because I think I mean I guess it sounds better than like here is here's a big
0: house. Did they try to pass it off? Is it, like did they tell people that like oh there's a there's a live person in there <laughs> keeping watch? Don't they don't know? They'll know? Don't fuck around. No
1: no no. It was it was commonly understood. That, like, people knew there okay. are bodies in here, but they lock it up and like it's safe. Mm-hmm. But it it also it sounds better if it's a watchtower. Like if you go to visit your dead relative it, in a cemetery, you don't want to go to a place where it's just like
0: rot. Tower. They could call it the keep. The keep. That's a nice word. That's a nice term. Yeah, the I keep. keep. They keep the bodies.
1: They they do keep the bo- well. They don't. They rot. They rot in there. But they, they keep the bo-
0: they keep the bodies until it's safe for them to go in the hole. Yeah. <laughs> to go in the hole. <laughs> that's what yeah. it is.
1: Yeah. So, um, but you can still find mm. some of these towers at like, really old cemeteries mm-hmm. in the UK. And in Scotland, definitely Scotland. Scotland mm. had a lot of body snatchers. Mm. And obviously it's not needed today. So mm. people literally do it today.
0: Hmm. That would uh, be interesting to visit.
1: Right? Uh, it def- it all- this practice of body snatching also happened in the US. And basically anywhere where universities wanted cadavers but couldn't get them. So it's happened in Sweden. It's happened like all over Europe. Uh, it's happened in Japan and China. It happens anywhere people need a body. That's where you get a body. The people who would do this job uh, often worked in small groups. They preferred freshly dug graves where the soil hadn't settled so they could dig easier. And they didn't want to be called body snatchers, because that sounds derogatory for this very highly valued (laughs) profession that they do. So they called themselves resurrectionists, because they they resurrected the body, in a sense. Uh, Today, body snatching doesn't really happen anymore, thankfully. Although it does occasionally happen, but not for medical purposes. A few years ago, for example, some people stole the skull of a pope, like a dead pope, Well, an anti-pope.
0: But An they didn't... anti-pope.
1: Well, oh, well, this is a little history thing. Back in the early Christianity, if someone didn't like the pope, they just said that another guy was the pope, <laughs> and then that, now we have two popes. And the, there's one pope in Rome, which is like the commonly understood real pope, and then there's like just like another pope that some priests think should be the real pope, and some kings think are the real pope, and that is called the anti-pop.
0: what is the cap on anti-popes? There
1: is no cap. There have, at some points, been uh, up to, I think, five popes at the same time.
0: Well, one pope and four anti-popes.
1: Y- yeah, but, but I mean, here's the kicker, right? Like, they all think that they're the pope, and everyone else is the anti
0: Well, They
1: all think that they're the real pope.
0: Okay, you, might thi- you, may, you, you may think you're the pope, mm-hmm. but do you have the crown? Do you have the scepter?
1: But but on occasion, there have been several popes at the same time, but none of them have been in Rome. Huh. So who, now, who's the, now who's the real pope? Do you, do you, trust, the, They're all the do you trust the pope in Avignon or do you trust the pope in fucking, like, Paris? Like, I don't know.
0: None of them. <laughs> okay, but now we know what the anti-pope is. Yeah. Good. So
1: they stole, basically, they stole the skull of one of these anti-popes and kept it uh, hostage for like a million dollars. Hmm. So, they do still do body snatching, but now it's more for like.
0: Like collection purposes? I'm collection
1: guessing. purposes. Oh, definitely. India, yeah. for example, yeah. still has a. India is one of the places that actually still has like a very alive and well body snatching industry mm-hmm. um, because their regulations are a bit more lax on international uh, like traffic in, of mm, bones.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And some people around the world like to collect bones and they buy them from India, from reputable sources. Quotes.
0: I mean, as somebody who likes to collect bones. (laughs) Do you collect human bones from India? No. And, yeah, I I mean, I would would feel uh, a little weird buying human bones off the internet. Yeah. Um, But people do. Yeah.
1: And... uh, Do you
0: remember that rumor about Marilyn Manson? That he had, like, a skeleton of a little girl from China in his closet? No. What? Yeah.
1: I've never heard this. But it does make sense.
0: And there's a lot of rumors about him. Anyway, a lot of people... <laughs> All I'm saying is, is a lot of... I feel like a lot of rich people also like collecting bones.
1: Yeah, <laughs> this is definitely true. And there is still a body-snatching industry. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't happen in, in most of the world. But it does still happen in India. Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. but not for medical purposes, but as you say, as a sort of like collective Collective item, item. Mm. or in some cases as a type of like cultural desecration, some Mm. uh, occasionally some people will like steal the bones of like a cultural group to to sort of harass that cultural group that's fucked up yeah that's very fucked up and that still happens today like people will steal the bones from like native american cemeteries mm. for for either for collection purposes because they think it's neat or from from a perspective of like well i hate native americans so i'm gonna like desecrate their graves why
0: would you hate native americans i know well, like, like what if... like why why what do they do to you
1: but anyway that's my story that i wanted to tell about you know. body snatching uh, I thought it was a, uh, an appropriate Halloween story. I
0: thought that was great, and
1: a uh, su- little surprise of, uh, that it actually involves serial killers. Yeah,
0: that was nice. Thank you. you. Was that everything you had? That's
1: everything I have. That's my end of end of notes. End of Halloween notes. The the true part <laughs> of oh, the true stories of Halloween is that over.
0: Yeah, because we we thought you would do history. Mm-hmm. I I thought it would be cool if I just uh, read some uh, creepy pasta yeah
1: medical related creepypasta
0: medical related creepypasta and i have i have three but i'm gonna see if um i'll read all of them just in the interest of time and we're gonna start with a really famous one mm-hmm. i think most people know it but i think that it's it's such a um, integral part of creepypasta that i can't mm-hmm. not read it i yeah. mean it's just so good
1: creepypasta for those of you who don't know what it is it's a scary story on the internet basically <laughs> That people copy and paste, but it's creepy. So it's instead of copy paste, it's creepy paste, creepy pasta.
0: Mm-hmm. So I'm gonna start with the Russian sleep experiment. I remember reading this when I was a teenager and thinking it was very spooky. So this story is one of the most popular and one of the widest spread creepy pastas ever written. And part of why it's so notorious is because it's quite plausible. So to this day, there's quite a lot of articles written about the story trying to investigate whether this is a true story or if it's a hoax Mm -hmm. um, or if maybe it's inspired from from reality Mm. uh, to some extent
1: yeah you know oftentimes you you read about like horror stories on the internet like of course that can't be true and then you read about like mk ultra and stuff it's just like no they weird governments do a lot of weird stuff Um, yep and this is one of those stories i think that maybe maybe not all of it is true, but some of this stuff has almost definitely happened at some point, right?
0: I keep getting surprised by how cruel people can be mm. and how cruel people in power can be. Mm-hmm. So I feel like a lot of the stories that you read that are you know similar to, to this one may very well be true. Mm. Yeah, so for those who don't know, the Russian sleep experiment is supposedly factual. It's a supposedly factual account of experimentation acted out on subjects by the Soviet government and military in the wake of World War II. And the experiment was supposed to measure the effects of sleep deprivation on the human body, and it was used to test a new gas that could keep people awake for days at a time. And this report that I'm going to read documents the degeneration of those experimented upon, and the individuals are referred to within the creepypasta community as a test subject.
1: But this is a fictional story. It's a
0: fictional story. As far as we as know. As far as we know, but we don't know.
1: We don't definitively know. We it don't. is Halloween, so we, we don't know. We don't know. I mean, maybe we do know outside of Halloween, but today we don't know. It could be true.
0: All right. Are you ready? I'm ready. <laughs> Are you ready for the story? I am. All right. All <clears> right. <throat> Russian researchers in the late 1940s kept five people awake for 15 days using an experimental gas based stimulant. They were kept in a sealed environment to carefully monitor their oxygen intake so the gas didn't kill them, since it was toxic in high concentrations. This was before closed circuit cameras, so they only had microphones, and five inch thick glass porthole sized windows into the chamber to monitor them. The chamber was stocked with books cots to sleep on but no bedding, running water and toilet, and enough dried food to last all five for over a month. The test subjects were political prisoners deemed enemies of the state during World War II. Everything was fine for the first five days. The subjects hardly complained, having been promised falsely that they would be freed if they submitted to the test and did not sleep for 30 days. Their conversations and activities were monitored, and it was noted that they continued to talk about increasingly traumatic incidents in their past, and the general tone of their conversations took on a darker aspect after the four-day mark. After five days, they started to complain about the circumstances and events that led them to where they were, and started to demonstrate severe paranoia. They stopped talking to each other and began alternately whispering to the microphones in one-way mirrored portholes. Oddly, they all seemed to think that they could win the trust of their experimenters by turning over their comrades, the other subjects, in captivity with them. At first, the researchers suspected this was an effect of the gas itself. After nine days, the first of them started screaming. He ran the length of the chamber repeatedly yelling at the top of his lungs for three hours straight. He continued attempting to scream, but was only able to produce occasional squeaks. The researchers postulated that he had physically torn his vocal cords. The most surprising thing about this behavior is how the other captives reacted to it, or rather, didn't react to it. They continued whispering to the microphones until the second of the captives started to scream. The two non-screaming captives took the books apart, smeared page after page with their own feces, and pasted them calmly over the glass portholes. The screaming promptly stopped. So did the whispering to the microphones. After three more days passed, The researchers checked the microphones hourly to make sure they were working, since they thought it impossible that no sound could be coming with five people inside. The oxygen consumption in the chamber indicated that all five must still be alive. In fact, it was the amount of oxygen five people would consume at a very heavy level of strenuous exercise. On the morning of the 14th day, the researchers did something they said they would not do to get a reaction from the captives. They used the intercom inside the chamber, hoping to provoke any response from the captives they were afraid were either dead or vegetables. They announced, We are opening the chamber to test the microphones. Step away from the door and lie flat on the floor or you will be shot. Compliance will earn one of you your immediate freedom. To their surprise, they heard a single phrase in a calm voice respond, We no longer want to be freed. Debate broke out among the researchers and the military forces funding the research. Unable to provoke any more response using the intercom, it was finally decided to open the chamber at midnight, on the 15th day. The chamber was flushed off the stimulant gas and filled with fresh air, and immediately voices from the microphones began to object. Three different voices began begging, as if pleading for the life of loved ones, to turn the gas back on. The chamber was opened and soldiers sent in to retrieve the test subjects. They began to scream louder than ever, and so did the soldiers, when they saw what was inside. Four of the five subjects were still alive, although no one could rightly call the state that any of them were in life. The food rations passed day five had not been so much as touched. There were chunks of meat from the dead test subjects' thighs and chest stuffed into the drain in the center of the chamber, blocking the drain and allowing four inches of water to accumulate on the floor. Precisely how much of the water on the floor was actually blood was never determined. All four surviving test subjects also had large portions of muscle and skin torn away from their bodies. The destruction of flesh and exposed bone on their fingertips indicated that the wounds were inflicted by hand, not with teeth, as the researchers initially thought. Closer examination of the position and angles of the wounds indicated that most, if not all of them, were self-inflicted. The abdominal organs below the ribcage of all four test subjects had been removed. While the heart, lungs, and diaphragm remained in place, the skin and most of the muscles attached to the ribs had been ripped off, exposing the lungs through the ribcage. All the blood vessels and organs remained intact. They had just been taken out and laid on the floor, fanning out around the eviscerated but still living bodies of the subjects. The digestive tract of all four could be seen to be working, digesting food. It quickly became apparent that what they were digesting was their own flesh that they had ripped off and eaten over the course of days. Most of the soldiers were Russian special operatives at the facility, but still many refused to return to the chamber to remove the test subjects. They continued to scream to be left in the chamber, and alternately begged and demanded that the gas be turned back on, lest they fall asleep. To everyone's surprise, the test subjects put up a fierce fight in the process of being removed from the chamber. One of the Russian soldiers died from having his throat ripped out, another was gravely injured by having his testicles ripped off, and an artery in his leg severed by one of the subject's teeth. Another five of the soldiers lost their lives if you count ones that committed suicide in the weeks following the incident. In the struggle one of the four living subjects had his spleen ruptured and he bled out almost immediately. The medical researchers attempted to sedate him, but this proved impossible. He was injected with more than 10 times the human dose of a morphine derivative and still fought like a cornered animal, breaking the ribs and arm of one doctor. When heart was seen to beat for a full two minutes after he had bled out to the point where there was more air in his vascular system than blood, even after it stopped. He continued to scream and flail for another three minutes, struggling to attack anyone in reach and just repeating the word more, over and over, weaker and weaker, until he finally fell silent. The surviving three test subjects were heavily restrained and moved to a medical facility, the two with intact vocal cords continuously begging for the gas, demanding to be kept awake. The most injured of the three was taken to the only surgical operating room the facility had. In the process of preparing the subject to have his organs placed back within his body, it was found that he was effectively immune to the sedative they had given him to prepare him for the surgery. He fought furiously against his restraints when the anesthetic gas was brought out to put him under. He managed to tear most of the way through a 4-inch wide lever strap on one wrist, even though the weight of a 200-pound soldier was holding that wrist as well. It took only a little more anesthetic than normal to put him under. In the instant his eyelids fluttered and closed, his heart stopped. In the autopsy of the test subject that died on the operating table, it was found that his blood had tripled the normal level of oxygen. His muscles that were still attached to his skeleton were badly torn, and he had broken nine bones in his struggle to not be subdued. Most of them were from the force his own muscles had exerted on them. The second survivor had been the first of the group of five to start screaming, His vocal cords destroyed, he was unable to beg or object to surgery, and he only reacted by shaking his head violently in disapproval when the anesthetic gas was brought near him. He shook his head yes when someone suggested, reluctantly, they tried the surgery without anesthetic, and did not react for the entire six-hour procedure of replacing his abdominal organs and attempting to cover them with what remained of his skin. The surgeon presiding stated repeatedly that it should be medically possible for the patient to still be alive. One terrified nurse assisting the surgery stated that she had seen the patient's mouth curl into a smile several times, whenever his eyes met hers. When the surgery ended, the subject looked at the surgeon and began to wheeze loudly, attempting to talk while struggling. Assuming this must be something of drastic importance, the surgeon had a pen and pad fetched so the patient could write his message. It was simple, keep cutting. The other two test subjects were given the same surgery, both without anesthetic as well although they had to be injected with a paralytic for the duration of the operation. The surgeon found it impossible to perform the operation while the patients laughed continuously. Once paralyzed, the subjects could only follow the attending researchers with their eyes. The paralytic cleared their system in an abnormally short period of time, and they were soon trying to escape their bonds. The moment they could speak, they were again asking for the stimulant gas. The researchers tried asking why they had injured themselves, why they had ripped out their own guts, and why they wanted to be given the gas again. Only one response was given, I must remain awake. All three subjects' restraints were reinforced, and they were placed back into the chamber, awaiting determination as to what should be done with them. The researchers, facing the wrath of their military benefactors for having failed the stated goals of their project, considered euthanizing the surviving subjects. The commanding officer, a former KGB agent, instead saw potential and wanted to see what would happen if they were put back on the gas. The researchers strongly objected, but were overruled. In preparation for being sealed in the chamber again, the subjects were connected to an EEG monitor and had their restraints padded for a long-term confinement. To everyone's surprise, all three stopped struggling the moment it was let slip that they were going back on the gas. It was obvious that at this point, all three were putting up a great struggle to stay awake. One of the subjects that could speak was humming loudly and continuously. The mute subject was straining his legs against the lever bonds with all his might, first left, then right, then left again, for something to focus on. The remaining subject was holding his head off his pillow and blinking rapidly. Having been the first to be wired for EEG, most of the researchers were monitoring his brainwaves and surprise. They were normal most of the time, but sometimes flatlined inexplicably. It looked as if he were repeatedly suffering from brain death, before returning to normal. As they focused on paper scrolling out of the brainwave monitor, only one nurse saw his eyes slip shut at the same moment his head hid the pillow. His brainwaves immediately changed to that of a deep sleep, then flatlined for the last time as his heart simultaneously stopped. The only remaining subject that could speak started screaming to be sealed in now. His brainwaves showed the same flat lines as one who had just died from falling asleep. The commander gave the order to seal the chamber with both subjects inside, as well as free researchers. One of the named three immediately drew his gun and shot the commander point-blank between his eyes, then turned the gun on the mute subject and blew his brains out as well. He pointed his gun at the remaining subject, still restrained to a bed as the remaining members of the medical and research team fled the room. I won't be locked in here with these things. Not with you, he screamed at the man strapped on the table. What are you, he demanded. I must know. The subject smiled. Have you forgotten so easily? The subject asked. We are you. We are the madness that lurks within you all, begging to be free at every moment in your deepest animal mind. We are what you hide from in your beds every night. We are what you sedate into silence and paralysis when you go to the nocturnal haven where we cannot tread. The researcher paused, then aimed at the subject's heart and fired. The EEG flatlined as the subject weakly choked out, so nearly free.
1: Mm, spooky. It's a good story. Yeah. Is this what people do at. Um...
0: <laughs> oh my god.
1: This is what you do at your masters. It's a good story, although I do think that the end is a little bit like, where are you?
0: Yeah, yeah, the end is a little bit um I don't I don't know what to call it. It's I, I think it could do with a better ending. It could
1: do a better with but I
0: think that the, the the setup is really good. Yeah. Um and it's it's well written too. I really like the story.
1: Yeah. Um I am looking forward to your master's thesis which is going to be the Swedish sleep experiment stop I feel no I I say that as a joke but like I also know exactly what Swedish universities did like the 1890s and Mm -hmm. stuff like that like we probably already have a Swedish sleep experiment like in reality
0: like I'm not even joking well I mean you have the I, I actually don't I don't remember what it was called but there is this experiment that was done in Sweden where so obviously it's not as bad but the test subjects were people with intellectual disabilities mm-hmm. in a, Do you know about this one? Mm-hmm. People with intellectual disabilities in uh, mental asylums. And researchers divided them into groups and gave one group, I think, molasses or, like, taffy candy. Mm-hmm. Really, free,
1: really, like, extra sticky Super candy.
0: sweet, yeah. And uh, sticky toffee candy, like, three times a day for, like, a few months. Mm-hmm. And just completely ruined their teeth. And at the at the end, they were like, yeah, sugar ruins your teeth. <laughs>
1: Yeah, the revolutionary <laughs> discovery. The,
0: and the thing is, the
1: thing is though, this the, and the thing that's really messed up about this, the story is, that, mm-hmm. like, for a long time, that study was written about, like, oh, cool, we figured out the effect that sweets have on teeth. Mm-hmm. and that was basically the entire narrative about that, like, like, but, like they... for like almost a century. I mean,
0: honestly, and then, like, I was...
1: a student.
0: Uh-huh. Sorry. All I was gonna say is, like, did they not know about caries before? Did they really have to do that experiment to find out about caries? Well, they needed to find out
1: that the the uh, like that some things ruin teeth faster than others, like other especially things. if it sticks to the teeth. That that's yeah. like a huge component that ruins the teeth. Yeah, uh, and that sugar does it, and not just like anything. Not that sticks just to the teeth. any
0: food. You yeah. know. Yeah. It makes me so mad because whenever I read about that project, it's always like, well, the reason they chose the the people in the mental asylum with intellectual disabilities is they can is because they could control their meals every day. Like, yeah. I'm like sure, sure that was the only reason. Like yeah. the fact that they had nobody to like stand up for them and advocate for them definitely yeah. did not play any role.
1: Yeah, for sure. And the thing that's like really messed about that is like it only really became like came to light like the the really violent abuses that involved in that study because mm-hmm. uh, like I th- I think a master's student or even like a bachelor's student like wanted to just like revisit the study mm-hmm. and just like. See how they came up with those results and mm-hmm. found out that, like, oh, oh, they basically tortured like dozens of people and giving them like what do you horrifying mean diseases. Because the because the, not only did they give them these these um, this candy, but like they completely ruined their teeth and yeah. their gums. And yeah, didn't and, like which can lead to like, horrifying infections in, in, in the jaw and the mm-hmm. face that, like, can lead into the brain. Yeah. Like, a lot of yeah. patients got, like, brain damage from this. From well, this I stuff. think the
0: word torture maybe is a little bit... Um, I don't know if it's an appropriate word to use here, but mm-hmm. it's... Um, yeah, I mean, it was more than just caries. Well, they it, gave it, them t- tooth yeah. damage, which can lead to other really serious conditions as yeah. well. I wonder if they got any treatment for it after. Although, I, you know, whatever treatment you get is probably not going to return... Your teeth to what they were before, yeah. anyway, the
1: Swedish tooth experiment. the
0: Swedish tooth experiment. Anyway, are you ready for our next story?
1: Your second scary Halloween
0: story. Mm-hmm. This one is a bit of a longer one, and I feel like I do want to I am I mean, it's not really a trigger warning, but I'm just gonna tell you what it's about okay um just i you know i feel like if if some people have like certain sensitivities about uh, certain topics i feel like i just want to to say what it is (laughs) so the story is named ella and it touches on themes like madness paranoia mental illness asylums uh doctors sensory disorders and it also has a short moment of animal violence Very short, but it's there, so I figured I would just say it.
1: Mm -hmm. This one's written by the human...
0: The human botfly. Oh, interesting. Here we go. In light of recent events, I think it is my public duty to share what I know about this case and the person it pertains to. Patient confidentiality be damned. My name is Dr. Ian Lang. I am a psychiatrist at the St. Christina Institute for the Mentally Disturbed in Ithaca, New York, and I was Ella's caretaker. The beginning is not a good place to start the story, as I believe that the progression of her disorder and what led to the conclusion of my part in her life is far more important. No one knows how Ella came to be this way, not even herself, I think, and therefore I feel that her background before being admitted is not worth discussing. I will, however, give a detailed account of the events that led to her diagnosis and explain the extent to which I tried and ultimately failed to keep her sanity in check. When 18-year-old Ella Reed Was literally dropped off on the doorstep of St. Christina's by her mother and father. None of the staff had any idea what to do. It was clear, however, that she was not normal. For one, her dull, auburn hair had been chopped off with what must have been a pair of blunt scissors just below her shoulders, as it was uneven in length and texture. Next, we noticed her clothes. It seemed to us that she was clad only in a long silk nightdress, with no shoes on her feet and no coat or jacket. This was especially odd, since it was the middle of January, and this winter was particularly bitter. But the confusion over these strange details vanished when we saw her skin. While only her face, neck, hands, and feet were exposed, we could determine that she was covered in wounds, as there were splotches of blood staining much of the purple fabric of her dress. The wounds that were visible were horrifying. Her hands had sustained the most damage, as they were littered with scratches and gouges, some of which had begun to scar but had been reopened, and many more that were infected. We also observed that three of her fingernails were either torn out at the roots or had been partially ripped off. There was even a slight scratch on the cornea of one of her hazel eyes. Immediately, she was rushed to the on-site clinic, where a thorough examination was done. Judging from the extent of her injuries and the manner in which her parents abandoned her, our first thought was that she was the survivor of extreme abuse. Therefore, we began to ask her questions about her relationship with her parents, siblings, and friends. But to each question, she either shook her head slowly, or refused to respond altogether. Trauma, we concluded, and after what must have transpired to result in such a horrendous outcome, it was no wonder she was unwilling to relive the memories." Just as we were about to try and find the contacts of the poor girl's parents and possibly get the police involved, one of the medical personnel stopped me and beckoned me to him. He instructed Ella to turn her hands over so that her palms were facing upward and then pointed under her fingernails. There was flesh caught under them, a lot of it. I was initially confused, not understanding what he was insinuating. Yes, there were skin and blood under her nails, but could those not have been defense wounds? I looked up at Ella to confirm my hypothesis, but all of the words died in my mouth when her gaze met mine, and I realized the truth. Her stare was blank, face void of any emotional inflections, yet there was an indescribable look in her eyes, as they bore into mine. She knew I had figured out what really happened, and those hazel eyes were daring me to challenge her on it. She had inflicted those wounds herself. I tried to get her to answer a simple question, why did you do this? But when she failed to respond, I gently took her left hand in mine to show I meant no harm, that she was safe. The once calm and stoic girl violently ripped her hand out of mine with a howl of anguish, causing me to reel back in shock. Her eyes were wild and crazed, and she took her right hand and began to dig the battered nails into the flesh of her left, right where my touch had been. With no restraint and seemingly no regard for pain, Ella proceeded to tear back and forth against the skin quickly drawing blood that spattered against her dress and onto the floor with the force of her thrashing. Her teeth were grit, her brow was furrowed, and her lips were quivering as she verged on tears. It took three security officers and a mild sedative to finally bring her under control. Ella had two more episodes that same day after the one at the clinic. The first appeared to be again triggered by physical contact. After she awoke from sedation, One of the nurses tried to touch her shoulder in comfort, and Ella reacted just as strongly as before, clawing at the skin and crying out in distress. But the second followed immediately after restraints were put in place to keep her hands immobile. By the response she gave, one would have thought that she was slowly being burned alive. She began wailing and screaming so loudly and emotionally that staff even from across the ward began to accumulate in the hallways, wondering what was going on. Ella's eyes were filled with suffering, and her face was twisted in agony. She thrashed viciously as she attempted to rip her hands out of the straps, fingers flexed and nails raking against the fabric uselessly. But it was when she began trying to lunge her face toward the restraints, teeth bared and snapping, in an attempt to gnaw them off, that she was once again put under. The pure savagery and lack of self-control was astonishing to everyone who had witnessed these events. Contrary to normal procedures, Ella was officially institutionalized that very evening, as she was deemed a hazard to herself and others, and fit all the criteria needed to qualify for treatment at St. Christina's. Since she was technically an adult, her parents were not legally obligated to meet with us to discuss the state and current situation their daughter was in. Even so, I had expected to collect from them at least a record of Ella's psychiatric or behavioral history in order to gain understanding as to how I could help her. But they refused to answer all calls and emails except one, where they firmly stated that they were terrified of their child and wanted nothing to do with her. Therefore, since I was designated Ella's primary caregiver, I had to start from scratch when crafting a treatment plan for her. My first insight into what was actually wrong with Ella came after she woke up from her last fit. I sat by her bedside as she slowly came to and watched as tears began to well in her eyes and slide down her scarred face. She immediately began to struggle once more against the restraints, but her movements were more sluggish and less violent than before, likely due to exhaustion and the after effects of the drugs. I tried to coax her into explaining to me why she reacted so negatively to people touching her and why she thought harming herself was a good response. Was it a coping mechanism, a distraction, a sort of reverse punishment for the ones who touch her? After a few more moments of unintelligible screaming, Ella began to speak, but her words were not an answer to my questions and were not even attempts to convince me that she did not belong in an institution. Instead, through her sob distorted mumblings, I realized that she was begging me to release the straps so that she could rub it off and that the feeling was still there and that she would die if she didn't make it stop. I had no idea what she was talking about. Rub what off? What feeling? And that was when the revelation hit me. Ella wasn't trying to escape. She was trying to reach her strap-covered wrists so that she could scratch them, as she had done the previous times. I began to think that perhaps this was a rare extension of a sensory disorder that made her want to, as she put it, rub off the feeling of physical contact from another person. But no one had touched her since she awoke. So when I realized that she was responding negatively only to the rough straps and not the silk dress that was also touching her, or the soft cotton pillow and mattress that supported her, I finally felt that all the pieces had fallen into place. With only a few days more research, I diagnosed Ella Reed with sensory processing disorder, SPD, with emphasis on texture aversion. The most extreme case of it I had ever seen. This would explain not only her violent reactions to certain textures, like the straps or in people's hands, but also her tolerance towards ones like silk and cotton. I also determined that her concerning habit of harming herself in response to different textures was a twisted attempt to erase the uncomforting feeling. In her own words, if it hurts, it doesn't bother me anymore. Unfortunately, Ella shortly became one of my hardest patients to care for, as predicting which objects would trigger her disorder was nearly impossible, and trial and error proved to be traumatizing for her. Four more months into her worryingly unfruitful treatment, Ella began showing aversions towards sound. During the first of these incidents, what was once simply the hum of the air conditioner became the catalyst for a reaction that rivaled those of her fits about texture. She began to scream. But those screams were not ones of discomfort or pain as we were used to, but just one long, continuous screech that was released at the top of her lungs. When we entered her room, she was in the fetal position in the center, her fingers tearing and clawing at her ears. As usual, all attempts at questioning and conversation were ineffective, and so it took three similar occurrences for us to discover that it was the sound of the air conditioning that was to blame and that her screams were efforts to drown out the noise. After these incidents, more and more regarding sound began to mix with the regular ones regarding texture. Noises like chewing, loud footsteps, tapping, humming and squeaking became just as necessary to avoid as textures like wood, concrete, velcro, sequins and fabric woven with yarn. Violent repulsion to smells and taste came soon after, with sight tying them all together, as even seeing the source of a potential discomfort became grounds for a fit. Day by day, Ella was slipping beyond her help, becoming consumed with agitation. Over the next year, both myself and my team of highly trained psychiatrists tried many methods to calm her disorder. Among those attempts were exposure therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, and even eye movement desensitization and reprocessing therapy. All ended in failures of a most horrific nature, Medication proved ineffective as well, as her disorder made it impossible to administer them in any form, be it liquid, pill, or injection. Ella herself was extremely uncooperative, and, as any doctor knows, you can't help a patient that does not want to help themselves. Nevertheless, we refused to give up on her. But results did not come fast enough, and Ella's condition deteriorated at an alarming rate with consequences that turned our concern for her recovery to fear it would never come. All we could do to preserve her remaining sanity was to put her in an environment that was completely controlled. There was to be no seam in the walls or chip in the floor that was not noticed and illuminated. To stress just how crucial a completely monitored environment was to her mental health, I feel it necessary to give a brief description of her room and the accommodations made for her as this was the basis of Ella's treatment and the only method that was effective. Entry into Ella's room could only be obtained through a large steel door with hinges that were oiled every six weeks. The room was kept at a constant 71 degrees Fahrenheit, with absolutely no detectable breeze or noise from the air conditioner. There were no windows in the room, since I knew, as stated before, that even seeing or listening to something not pleasant could potentially send her out of control. There was to be no cardboard, textures with bumps or ridges, metal mesh, sand, plants, or anything sticky allowed in the room. The only scent permitted was light lavender and orange that was infused through the air via an essential oil diffuser. The only furniture was her bed, with custom cotton sheets and silk blankets and pillowcases, and one small table and one chair. All of these furniture items were made of smooth metal, as I feared wood could potentially splinter or have rough patches. The walls were painted deep purple, a color Ella seemed to respond quite positively toward, and the floors were dark linoleum with no gaps between the planks. Even the lighting was monitored, with bulbs spread out evenly over the entire room so that the levels of soft yellow light were consistent. Ella herself could only wear silk, must have her hair completely straightened with no frizz, have her fingernails filed and trimmed every day, never be given food that was not perfectly pureed, and never be allowed to peek outside her room. All personnel that would encounter her had to be clean-shaven with their hair smoothed back, no facial blemishes such as acne or scars, follow the dress code exactly, and speak in a smooth, even tone. They must never wear cologne or perfume, have neat and unblemished fingernails, never show their teeth while smiling, and most important of all, never touch her. Of course, the full list of accommodations is even more extensive, with additions and corrections being added nearly every day, but I was more than happy to do anything I could to help my patient survive her own mind. Ella became violent towards others about a year and a half into her stay. For months, it had become increasingly apparent that her disorder was slowly consuming her entire being, making it nearly impossible to do any kind of activity, whether it be talking, drawing, reading, or playing a board game. But within her little environment, her fits became fewer and far between, and when she did hurt herself, her wounds were much less severe. Although she was becoming more and more detached with the reality, she seemed calmer and more at peace in her own head, perhaps even happy. But everything changed when the animal therapy group came to visit. My reasoning for bringing in such a group to Ella was simple. Now that I thought I understood her disorder and her fits had become more preventable and less serious, I believed she was ready to begin taking steps towards her eventual integration back into normal life. I was wrong. It quickly became horrifyingly apparent that Ella's mind was so far gone that she could no longer recognize life and living creatures, only good and bad sensations. To her, I believe she only saw sleek black fur and glassy emerald-like eyes, both very appealing to her disorder and not a living, breathing cat. So even when the poor beast was screaming, she couldn't understand that it was in pain and that she was killing it. But when it became scratching and biting at her arms in a desperate attempt to save itself, something in Ella snapped. My theory as to why she mutilated that cat comes down to the fact that in the past, her self-harm came from herself only, triggered by an unpleasant but not hostile source. Never before had another living creature drawn her own blood. Therefore, in some twisted way, Ella felt that eliminating the feeling on her own body was no longer enough to appease her disorder. She now had to eliminate the source. Before we could enter the room to save it, she had already broken the cat's neck and was in the process of tearing out clumps of its fur. There was no remorse on her face, no horror at what she had done, no humanity. From that point on, Ella was changed. With increasing regularity, staff would be forced to flee her room as a now almost 20-year-old lunged at them after perceiving some unacceptable sensation. Three times, staff she once tolerated were sent to the emergency room with deep scratches and even bite marks on their faces, arms, and hands. New procedures had to be put in place to protect the personnel caring for her. While only one person was allowed inside the room with Ella at any given time, no less than two others had to be on constant watch from the monitor outside, ready to intervene at a moment's notice. One security officer, armed with a taser and sedatives, had to be positioned by her door constantly. The girl's nails now had to be trimmed to just below her fingertips, to prevent any possibility of scratching. And lastly, there were to be no more visits by anyone from outside the facility. Ella's physical conditions worsened as well, as a result of her mental shift. She began harming herself more violently than ever before, opening up closed wounds and tearing out her hair and even her eyelashes, One morning, after scraping her toe against the corner of her table, her mind reacted so severely that she took the appendage and broke it, leading to all of the furniture in the room being removed. She even began to complain that the very skin on her bones was causing her agony and that she would rather have it all removed than endure it any longer. She retreated further and further into her own mind, becoming distant from the world and others. Eventually, about a year later, Ella's situation became so extreme that her needs exceeded what we could provide at St. Christina's. In her state, what she required was to be moved to a place where she could live out the rest of her life safe and undisturbed, not in a hospital for those who can get better. Therefore, I made arrangements for her to be transferred to the Massachusetts Long-Term Care Facility for the Insane in Boston. This facility specialized in uncommon cases and even had a program called Unusual Mental Illness in Youth that focused on studying and bringing awareness to strange and rare mental conditions. Dr. Timothy Wallace, the president of the organization, assured me that not only would Ella be well cared for, but that her life at this facility would benefit the world. Once the meetings were finished and the paperwork was signed, Ella's life was officially taken out of my hands and was placed into his. However, even after many weeks of briefings regarding the specific details and necessities essential to caring for Ella, Dr. Wallace never seemed to wholly comprehend just how violent Ella had become. He appeared to think more romantically than scientifically, believing that nature and loving care could be alternatives to medicine. I attempted to make it bluntly clear that underestimating Ella and her capabilities was a potentially deadly mistake, but although he promised he understood, I was sure he never did, as he had no security officers with him. It would be this misunderstanding that led to his death. The day Ella was to make the five-and-a-half-hour drive from Ithaca to Boston was warm and sunny, with not one cloud to clutter the bright blue sky. For over three years, the young woman, who was now nearly 21, had never set foot even outside her room, and I was very concerned about the potential repercussions a change as large as transferring facilities could have for her disorder. However, I knew that I could at least guarantee a safe ride for both Ella and the doctor, as I gave the latter two syringes filled with a heavy sedative, One to administer now, and one for when the first wore off exactly halfway through their trip. When the first dose applied, Ella was taken from her room and loaded into the specially designed trailer with no problems. All of her files, belongings, and medications were given to Dr. Wallace, who I recall being extremely excited, and with one final wish of luck, they were sent on their way. My part in Ella's life was now over, and I expected to never hear about her again. I believed that she would struggle and likely cause trouble, both for herself and the staff at her new home, but would eventually settle down. I knew that recovery was impossible, but I hoped that with the new doctor, her life would at least be as peaceful as her disorder would allow. You can therefore imagine my surprise when I was called by the Albany Police Department not even four hours later with a mandatory request for my immediate presence. Once there, my worst fears were confirmed. I was informed that at approximately 12.30 that afternoon, less than an hour before I was called, a young family walking through a park discovered a man, dead and mangled beyond recognition, lying on the ground. When police arrived, he was identified as Dr. Wallace, and further investigation of the vehicle he was leaned against revealed the purpose of his journey and the other person that was supposed to be inside. Ella was gone. At once, I directed investigators to the 2 audioless cameras that were located in the transport vehicle, one in the trailer to monitor the person inside, and one between the driver and passenger's seats, facing out the windshield. Both were recording at all times during the trip to ensure that the driver was safe and that the patient was treated correctly. But instead of two and a half hours of smooth, uneventful driving, the footage revealed unimaginable horrors. This footage has not yet been released to the media, as the investigation is still ongoing and the images are appallingly graphic, but I have been given express permission to describe what everyone saw. The timestamp on the videos read 11.14, when Dr. Wallace pulled into the empty lot of a small park in Albany to administer the second dose of sedative, as the first one was wearing off. The camera inside the trailer recorded as he pulled open the door, stepped inside, and reached for Ella's arm. The young woman was now awake, but since she was still under the final few minutes of the drug's effects, she was calm and compliant, not at all aggressive or agitated as she usually was. She sat with her head hung low, limbs weak and eyes unfocused, unresponsive to his presence. Just as he was about to administer the dose, Wallace paused and looked outside at the sky. Then smiling, he said something to Ella as he unbuckled her from the seat and I watched in disbelief as he pulled her out of the trailer and into the sunlight. For the first time in years, Ella was in a completely uncontrolled environment, and I knew this could only end in disaster. It was also at that moment that my suspicions regarding Wallace's incomplete understanding of Ella's behavioral conditions were proven correct, as he was content to stand beside the unpredictable and potentially violent woman with no forethought to possible consequences. I believe that he did not accept my diagnosis and warnings of her extreme hostility when I briefed him. After all, he had only ever seen Ella when she was highly medicated and had never experienced one of her rages. Therefore, it is my guess that Wallace had an idealistic vision that she was a poor, chopped girl who just needed to be out in nature to trigger some kind of inner peace. Unfortunately, it only proved to do the opposite. They were now out of range of the trailer's camera, but the one between the front seats displayed the two in the corner of the frame through the passenger's side window. I could only observe with mounting dread as the doctor began speaking to Ella, gazing up at the sky and gesturing to the landscape. Her face was partially visible through the window as she began to come out of her drugged haze, the sedative finally wearing off and allowing her senses to absorb what was around her. As a person who had grown to know Ella very well through her time in my care, I could hardly stand to watch. First, I observed her eyes. They widened, the pupils constricting as she drank in the scene before her. The uneven terrain, the leaves scattered randomly across the ground, the rust on the playset, and the faded paint of the parking lot. Immediately after, she slapped a hand over her nose as her sense of smell was assaulted by a typhoon of scents. Grass after a recent rain shower... Dead leaves, barbecue, exhaust fumes, and the doctor's cologne. Next, her head began to shake from side to side in what I knew was a characteristic attempt to rid her ears of unpleasant sounds that were currently all around her screeching tires, bird chatter, honking horns, distant conversations, dogs barking. Her shoulders began to tremble as her head shaking became more violent and she started to claw at her face. Her mouth was open, and I knew she must have been crying and shrieking in agony but then Dr. Wallace made his fatal mistake. Immediately noticing the panic attack Ella was having and realizing that he had just made a grave error in exposing his new patient to extremely triggering conditions, he touched Ella's arm. The young woman turned on him faster than I could comprehend. Teeth barred and fingers splayed like claws. Her eyes blazed in desperation and fury as she charged toward him, and before Wallace could ready the sedative and self-defense, Ella tackled him to the ground and out of view. The silence of the footage only made the tension more unbearable, as a few seconds crept by with no movement. But suddenly, the video began to shake when the vehicle itself jolted from side to side as something heavy was repeatedly slammed against it. Out the passenger window, I could see Wallace's flailing legs, proof that a major struggle was occurring and that he was losing. But with one final jolt, A splatter of blood hit the window, and nearly all visibility through it was lost. A few moments of stillness followed, until I saw movement. Someone had gotten up, and it was Ella. The last image I saw of her was as she crossed the front of the hood of the vehicle, and in direct view of the camera. She looked demonic. Her face was blank, but her eyes were wide and unseeing, as though her mind had finally snapped once and for all, and her consciousness was gone. She was covered in gore, blood coating her face, neck, and body, with bits of sinew and chunks of flesh caught in her hair and clothing. She stumbled and twitched randomly as she walked, movement slow but undeliberate, as if her senses were no longer relaying proper information to her brain, as if her mind was disconnected from her body. I am not sure how long she will be able to survive on her own with her disorder, but by giving this account of Ella's history and condition, I hope to God that the public will hear and heed my warning." the person Ella Reed was is gone. Truly, I believe her disorder has devolved her humanity into that of an animal driven by deranged senses. She has taken a human life with no second thought and will likely do it again. If you encounter her, under no circumstances should you engage with her in any way as logic and compassion have long since been absent from her mind. I pray that this ordeal is sorted before further blood is shed. Thank you for your time.
1: It's a messed up story.
0: <laughs> so the story was written by the human botfly.
1: mm mm-hmm. And thank God it's fictional.
0: Yeah. Um, you know, I do have some I have some sensory sensitivities. So actually reading the story, I was like <laughs>
1: <laughs> Did it hit for you can you relate it?
0: I relate it a little bit. I'm you know, I'm not gonna go, go around killing people, but I, I definitely relate to this feeling of like um
1: Good and bad sensations.
0: Yeah, less good, more bad. Mm. Uh, You know, sounds and touches and smells. So I think maybe this is why I chose this one specifically. Nice. (laughs) Yeah, that was the story. I hope you enjoyed it.
1: That has been the spooky Halloween (laughs) episode special where we... We sprinkle in all little facts, but then we also we we go we go full Halloween with the horror stories.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it. We hope you have a spooky Halloween.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, hope you do the Monster Mash. We Did the Mash? We, we did, did the Monster,
0: Monster mash. mash. I love that song so mm-hmm. much.
1: It's a ratings smash. It's caught it caught on in a flash. <laughs>
0: All right. We hope you have a wonderful Halloween. Mm-hmm. Thank you for listening.
1: Mm-hmm. Next week, uh, not next week, but next episode, we'll be back to our normal uh, ye oldie medical history <laughs> uh, format, and uh, may- maybe we'll do something seasonal for other seasonal events in yeah. the future.
0: We'll see how how this one does. It's the first time we're doing something like this, mm-hmm. so. We hope that uh, it went well. We hope you enjoyed it. too. And if it goes well, we'll do it again. Yeah. If not, we won't.
1: <laughs> I was just thinking about like what 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 else could we do? Like what is like what is a Christmas medical mystery?
0: No, I was thinking about that too earlier.
1: Chinese New Year medical mystery. Easter medical the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Talk about could talk about resurrections generally.
0: Maybe. If we come up with something fun, maybe. Maybe. I wouldn't want to, like, force it, That's true.
1: And we do have, like, an ever-growing list of, of episode topics that yeah, we exactly, also do want exactly. to do.
0: exactly. Uh,
1: it's growing faster than we can make episodes. Mm-hmm. But with all of that said, yeah, thank you so much for listening. We have been LeechFest. I have been Mia Murder.
0: I have been Dracula Montano. <laughs> and Muntano. Uh, and shout out again to Oxy for... Um,
1: for sponsoring this episode. For
0: sponsoring this episode.
1: And uh, if you want to con- consume more ghoulish content, uh, you can go to twitter.com slash leechfestpod, mm-hmm. I believe. And if you want to support this podcast financially, you can go to patreon.com slash leechfest. Leech uh, and uh, have, eat, don't eat too much candy.
0: Have a wonderful Halloween. Uh, bye.
1: Bye.